What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 41 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. We'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. And I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with Aaron Peters. Aaron is a teacher and researcher working on a fascinating question that has puzzled teachers for generations. In his time, Aaron has lived and taught in a variety of exciting locations across the world, from Ghana to the Australian outback to his current place of settlement, New Zealand. He's always been motivated by tough education challenges because he's driven by desire to offer help where help is needed, but also because Aaron recognises that true professional growth happens when we step outside of our comfort zones. Aaron was first mentioned in the ERRR podcast back in episode 28 with Vivian Robinson when Vivian spoke of Aaron's fascinating research into what it is that stops students from seeking help even when they need it. And I knew from the outset that I just had to have Aaron onto the show. In line with that, a big thanks to longtime ERRR supporter George Lilly for his reminder to get in touch with Aaron now that Aaron is nearing the end of his PhD research on this topic. This discussion with Aaron is a really powerful one. I just love the ERRR episodes in which our guest provides us with a new way to see the world, a new mental model with which to interpret our everyday realities in the classroom, and new terminology that we can use to describe our everyday experiences. This episode takes on an incredibly important topic and one that I've been wrestling with for my whole career. I hope that you enjoy this discussion on why students don't ask for help, even when they need it, and what teachers can do about it. I'm also excited to share that this episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. John Cat is a wonderful publisher who has recently brought out some really excellent books on education. These include Rosenshine's Principles in Action, a book put together by the brilliant Tom Sherrington, which summarizes Barack Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction. At a concise 81 pages, it's the perfect gift for an early career teacher or someone wanting to really cement the foundations of good teaching. Tom's book has been such a great seller that at one point it was charting above Michelle Obama on the Amazon bestseller list. Another book that I loved recently was Craig Barton's Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain. I had Craig on the podcast back in episode 20, and Craig's new book is well worth a read if you're wanting to push your math teaching to the next level. A few other GCE books that I'm particularly interested in the moment include Teaching for Mastery by Mark McCourt, Dual Coding for Teachers by Oliver Caviglioli, plus and I'm super excited about this one, Teaching Walkthroughs. My copy is on its way to me in the post as we speak, and you'll hear more about this book in ERRR episode 42. Now, I have some very exciting news for you, dear listeners. John Cat Educational has a special deal exclusively for ERRR listeners at the moment. Just go to johncatbookshop.com forward slash ERRR. Sorry, I know that's a bit long, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. And use the code ERRR30 at checkout to receive 30% off any books from John Cat Educational. Remember that code, ERRR30, in order to get 30% off all John Cat Educational books. Please don't forget to subscribe to emails at ollielovell.com if you're keen to ensure that you never miss a post or a podcast. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into episode 41 of the ERRR podcast with Aaron Peters. Aaron. 
Aaron Peters, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me, Ollie. It's wonderful to be invited. Wonderful. So, first question we ask Aaron is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Aaron, what is it that you do? What's your answer? It's a pretty mundane answer compared to a lot of the people you have on the show. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I'm a, I've been a primary school teacher for, that's my training, but my last few years I've mainly been working in high schools. I don't usually mention that I'm doing a PhD because not many people really want to get into that sort of stuff. Well, I guess today's an exception then. We'll be getting all right into that. What do you think is the purpose of school-based education, Aaron? I think there's lots, really. Like being a teacher, lots of people like to think about things they can add in to what schools should be doing and not really much discussion about what you take out to make space for that sort of stuff. I guess, though, one of the things that I've started to think is more important and probably schools don't do well is helping kids have really adaptive beliefs about learning and like learning from errors and things like that. So I think, you know, kids kind of come to school pretty, pretty open to learning. So they're pretty willing to give things a go. But as they go through school more and more, they start to want to withdraw and they kind of develop this idea that they're meant to know everything already. And I guess for the implications for when you leave school, I've had to learn heaps since leaving teachers college, for example. And if we don't prepare kids to be able to kind of keep learning after school, then I think, you know, that's kind of going to disadvantage them later in their life. That's a really good point and very on topic. So today we're discussing three of your papers. The first one is entitled Theories in Use that Explain Help-Seeking Behaviours. Number two is The Cycle of Protection, Interaction Between Teachers and Students' Theories of Action for Managing Errors. And the third one is Simply Reframing Errors. How did you get into studying these topics? I think originally I got interested in in it through my experience learning languages. I did, I did Indonesian at university for three years. I did Japanese for one year. I went and lived overseas and learned the languages where, like I lived in Ghana for two years doing teacher training. And throughout that whole experience, I kind of noticed that there's a lot of times where you don't know exactly the right word to say. You'll never be as competent as a native speaker. So you have to be comfortable like approximating. So what I would do is I would often just say something that I thought was close, but I knew wasn't right. And what happened was it kept the conversation going. So I spent more time talking than kind of, you know, sitting there saying nothing. And people were actually then, they'd kind of grasp what you're trying to say and they'll give you feedback. That helps you figure out what you should have said in the, in the first place. And I noticed colleagues or other people who are learning the language would feel a little bit different. Like if they didn't know exactly the right way to say it, they would rather not say it at all. And so just, I guess, not doing that, I could see how that really held people back. And that kind of got me interested in being willing to have a go when you're not exactly sure. When I first started looking to do the PhD about this topic, I was working in a remote Indigenous community in Australia. So I approached the, like the kind of community liaison person who'd worked in those communities for a long time to just see if it was a good topic of study for the 
for those people. And he told me how there was people who were adults who were still mocked for misspelling emu when they're at school. And so he's like, yeah, this this idea of being shamed when you don't get the things, get something right, is can be like a really big issue out there. So I thought, okay, it's quite relevant here as well. So right, so they, they like spelt emu incorrectly when they were like 10 and then they were 25 and their mates were still grilling them about making the mistake when they were 10. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's what his story was. Okay, wow. So just the idea that getting something wrong shames you and in that situation, for those guys could last that could go with them for the rest of their life by the sound of it. But as a teacher in those classrooms, I noticed that happening every day because the kids, when they didn't know something, you know, then they would go into their shell. And I guess for me, I started thinking, okay, if you go into your shell when you don't know something, that's the best way to make sure that you're, you're not going to learn it. So how can we kind of get people out of this pattern where they – feel like it's wrong to be wrong but by doing so they just make themselves they contribute to their own incompetency when i approached the school that i'm with like where i started the study in new zealand they talked about math being an area where kids were particularly doing this kind of thing they said like kids will come in to sit a test and they would straight away kind of just say oh sir can i do a reset and then they would sit there for the rest of the period and not attempt any of the tests. So it just it just seemed to keep popping up as a as a problem for people when they're trying to learn stuff. All right. So today we're talking about help seeking and asking questions. So I thought a good place to start might be for you to provide a little bit of clarity around the difference between help seeking and asking questions if one's a subset of the other. Yeah, and just kind of paint a bit of a picture of, of what we're going to be talking about today. So I kind of look at it all as falling under the umbrella of what you do when you don't understand and whether or not the action you take when you don't understand is going to help you understand or whether or not it's not really going to help and just you'll continue being stuck. So help-seeking, I haven't, to be honest, mainly I looked at help-seeking more than asking questions because... The help-seeking aspect, I noticed kids would be in class and they don't quite understand what's going on. They would, because I reviewed their books and things like that, and you could tell from their work that they didn't, there's lots of gaps. They didn't really know. And so, but they wouldn't want to say so. They wouldn't want to let the teacher know that they didn't really understand. So that's kind of like been the overarching idea for help seeking, but also what they did was they would copy answers rather than try and attempt them. So if they are, if there's a problem on the board and the teacher says give it a go and they're not quite sure, rather than trying it themselves, they'll hold back and wait for the teacher to put the answer up on the board and then they'll copy that down in their book thinking that they'll study it later but not really understanding what they're doing anyway. Okay, so that's, that's broadly help seeking. Got it. So, I mean, many teachers have experienced this kind of thing before, and it, help-seeking is something that's been studied in the literature before. So, from the existing literature, what are some of the explanations that have been offered in the past for why students behave in this way? I thought there's kind of two that popped up in my 
reading of the literature, one that really appealed to me initially was the idea of achievement goal theory. So achievement goal theory is kind of says students perceive help seeking differently depending on their academic goals. So if students' academic goal is to master the curriculum, um, then they're pretty keen to seek help and try and understand it. If students' goal is to outperform others, which is called performance approach goals, then they may or may not see help seeking as beneficial because they, they're not so concerned about understanding, they're much more concerned about trying to be a high performer. And then there's the kind of category which I thought resonates most with the kids who avoid help, which is performance avoidance goals. So their goal is to avoid being seen as less capable than other students or even as, as needing help in the first place. So that was one of the main theories that kind of resonated with me at the start. The other big one is growth mindset theory, which I kind of think has been lost some of its integrity the more it's become popular. I think like the original conception of growth mindset is quite simply whether or not people perceive their intelligence as malleable or fixed. So if you see your intelligence as malleable and you're not quite sure about something, well, that's a problem you can overcome by trying harder or using a better strategy. But if you think it's fixed, then you kind of think, well, I can't overcome this problem and people are just going to find out how bad at this I am. So so both of those things kind of are the theoretical explanations that I came across to try and explain why kids might avoid help rather than seek it or why they might copy rather than attempt problems. Okay, so what did you think was lacking or insufficient about these existing theories? Originally, I didn't really think anything was lacking because I thought, okay, that kind of seems like a reasonable explanation. But when I started researching it myself, I kind of found that it, it didn't really match what I was seeing in the classroom. So I would see kids go to tutorials after class, like spend their own time going to try and learn stuff. And that seemed like, okay, that's pretty mastery oriented. You want to try and really improve, but then chuck them in a normal classroom and they would be, they would, they would act like they understand when, when they didn't, they would copy, they would, you know, they, the teacher would say, okay, does everyone get it? And they'll say, oh yeah, I get it. But meanwhile, they didn't. And that's why they had to go to the tutorials in the first place. So one of the things was it didn't really match the data. This, I guess that's about the achievement growth theory. And do you want to know a couple of more things about? Yeah, sure. Tell us, because I'm, I'm sure quite a few teachers and listeners potentially would have come across these theories before. So I think this is like a really interesting point because you got to a space in your research where you thought, well, this, these theories aren't cutting it for me and for what I'm seeing. So I think it's yeah, definitely something worth, worth delving into a bit deeper. I guess as a teacher, you often find that theories, you want a theory to work. So if you're going to invest the time and energy to try and learn a theory and change a practice around it, you want to know that it's going to lead to the consequences that the theory suggests. And for me, just thinking of achievement goal theory, I kind of started thinking, okay, well, how can I get kids to have a, a mastery goal or a, instead of a performance goal? 
And there wasn't really much in the way of what you can do to make that happen. But the more I kind of researched it myself, the less I thought that's what your teachers needed to do anyway. Because kids didn't seem to have different goals. They all seemed to want to learn. But what popped up was they also wanted to avoid being embarrassed. They also wanted to avoid annoying other people. So they had relational goals and kind of protective goals as well. So I started to think, well, they probably, my data suggested that the kids pursued multiple goals at the same time, but sometimes they weren't sure whether or not asking for help would actually help them achieve all of those goals. So, yeah, so then that's, and that started to make more sense then in terms of how I might encourage more help seeking because if you could understand the conditions under which kids would or wouldn't seek help, well, the conditions is probably easier to change than like a goal that you're not sure whether or not that's actually what's driving their behavior. Mm, that's really interesting. Now, I mean, what you've been talking about now relates very much to one of the key kind of theoretical ideas within your papers, and that's the idea of attention system. Just then you were talking about there's, you know, all the students want to learn, but there's also things pulling them in other directions, like not wanting to be embarrassed and things like that. So did you want to flesh out that idea of attention system a little bit for listeners? Yeah. The, like the, the idea of attention system is, a, is an old, it's kind of like a foundational concept in social psychology that there's promoting and restraining forces. And if you can understand the promoting and restraining forces, you can kind of understand how people end up, what the forces that maintain the status quo. So in the context of help seeking, I guess a lot of the promoting forces was, well, I want to pass exams. I want to make sure that I learn this stuff. I need to know maths. The teacher's encouraging me to have a try. You know, a lot of the times teachers would encourage students or they'll tell students errors are okay. But the tension came because students rarely experienced actual learning from errors or often they didn't find the teacher's help actually helpful. So the teacher might say it again, repeat their demonstration, and it didn't make sense to the student the first time, and it didn't make sense to the student the second time, but now what's happened is they've disclosed that they don't get it, they've got extra help, and they still don't get it. So this is where the, the risks come in, because they start to feel like, oh, I still don't get it after I've got help. It must be me. There was also tensions with their goals for maintaining relationships in the classroom. So they were concerned that, say, they didn't want to hold up the rest of the class's learning. So they would say, oh, so what was that? And then other kids would turn around and say, he said it already. Weren't you listening? So other people who already got it were kind of putting pressure on the other people to keep quiet if they didn't get it. So there's various kind of tensions going on in like the flow of a normal class where you're sitting there going, okay, I want to get it, but also I don't want to annoy people and also I don't want people laughing at me, so what should I do? And they kind of found ways, like it, it, was, it, was, a good, it was a good strategy for understanding how it made sense to the students, okay, because originally when I looked at them and I thought, oh, why are they not getting help or why are they not trying this, giving it a go? 
And the tension system helped me understand, okay, there's good reasons. Yeah, there's promoting and there's restraining forces. That's great. Another really interesting thing is kind of how hard it is and how hard it was, and you kind of describe this, to get to understanding what was going on for the kids and in the environment. And, you know, because you would conduct interviews and you'd say, oh, why didn't you ask a question at this time? And students would say one thing, but then when you dug a little bit deeper, you found that maybe what they said wasn't exactly representative of, of what was actually going on. And at this point, you introduced the kind of terminology of espoused theories versus theories in use. And um, this has actually been really helpful to me recently because I've been working with my mate, George Zonios, who I had on the podcast a few months ago to introduce some software he developed. And I've recently started working with him on that. And we've been interviewing a lot of people about their learning process, how they learn, what they're trying to achieve in their learning. And we've been actually finding the same thing. So people will often say, oh yeah, I want I wanted some software that helps me to take lots of notes and keep them really organized. But then it'll be like, okay, what do you do to take notes already? And they'll say, oh, well, I don't actually take notes right now, but I want to be able to take notes. So there's like a mismatch before, between what they say they want and what their actual actions tell us about their goals. So I thought this was a really powerful framework within your paper that I've been able to apply to my classroom and also other areas of my life. So can you go into a bit of detail about this idea of espouse theories versus theories in use and how this played out and how you tried to get to the theories in use? Sure. I guess it's not my idea. It came from a, a guy called Chris Argerus, who's kind of like a, a guru in organizational learning. And he noticed, I guess, the big idea before you talk about espouse theories and theories in use is that actions are a part of a larger design that kind of make up people's behavior. So the design's kind of made up of the actions, what people do, but it's also there's a set of motives and reasons that lead people to prefer those actions to alternatives. So there's the actions, then there's the beliefs that drive them, and the other part of the design is the consequences. And some of those consequences are desired because that's part of why people want to do what they do, but some of them are undesirable. So you can end up acting in ways that kind of make it difficult to achieve all the consequences that you want to accomplish. Does that make sense? Yeah, getting there. Okay, so what they found was that people didn't actually have one theory of design. They had two theories of design. One was the one they thought they were doing. So, and they looked at like learning in organizations and how people would handle issues of conflict and, and things like that. So people would kind of say, okay, you know, They'll say, okay, how are you going to kind of approach this problem with somebody? And they'll say, okay, well, I'm going to kind of respectfully inquire into what's going on for them. And then what they'll do is they'll get actual data of people approaching the problem with someone and they'll see, well, actually, it's pretty hard to describe what they're doing as respectfully broaching the problem. Like lots of people were quite guarded about actually talking about the problem, for example. So they didn't, you know, they might ask a leading question to try and get the other person to start broaching the problem instead of them. So there's kind of, and 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 then they they notice that people were unaware of the discrepancy between what they were doing and what they said they were doing. So there's there's kind of a discrepancy between your actions and people are more likely to see 
their intentions than their actions. So they might say, well, I, I was trying to get him to have a go at it, which is an intention. But let's say, like I say, I was trying to help the student. That's the teacher's intention. The teacher might have actually confused the student because they repeated something that they didn't get in the first place. So that's an action. So they're, so they're a little bit different. So the, the one thing is the unawareness that you're not quite you're not quite aware of your actions as opposed to your intentions. So uh, do you want me, I'll go into how we got at the theories in use. So the first thing we had to do was to make sure we looked at rather than asking students, well, what do you do when you don't understand? Because you ask kids that and they say, well, well I'll ask for help. So that wasn't really that's their that's their spouse theory. What we had to do was we had to like we had to observe kids when they were unsure about stuff, and then we could start to go, okay, well, this is what they actually do when they don't get it. And not many help-seeking studies have really used observations to see how kids act when they don't understand. So that's in the first case that's important because you can start to see well what's the conditions under which they do and don't understand. Because the next step is to try and understand the motives and the reasons that match the patterns in the actions that you've identified. And that can be quite tricky because if you ask people why they're doing what they're doing, they may not be actually aware of that. So there's kind of three strategies I talk about in the paper which helped get at the theories in use and surface the, the motives that explain what students. So the first one was about creating dissonance. So because a lot of the time you just kind of take things for granted, it was kind of the first step is kind of making what seems normal strange, if that makes sense. So what I'll do is I'll say to the kids, okay, so when the teacher said everybody gets it and you said yes and everybody else said yes, did that mean everybody got it? And they would be going, oh, no. No, that's not what it means. Everybody didn't get it. I'll be like, oh, so, so what you're, what you're, what's going on in your head is I don't get it. But what's coming out of your mouth is, oh, yep, I get it. How come? And that could, that kind of puts the kids in a bit of more of a reflective state, or whoever you're talking to in a more reflective state, so they can go, oh, yeah, and they start surfacing reasons that you know may or may not explain what's going on. But the next step is you need to you you kind of need to interrogate those reasons to make sure they match the patterns of behavior. So as part of the interviews we did, it wasn't just about getting students to tell you why they're doing what they're doing. A lot of it was about checking their accounts for their behavior with their what they really did to see that they matched up. So, for example, a kid might say, oh, well, you know, I didn't ask the teacher what was going on while he was teaching the lesson because everybody else would feel it slows down the learning and they'll get annoyed. But it doesn't really explain why the student wouldn't ask the teacher when he's not teaching the whole class. So you, you have to kind of, you know, disclose these examples and say, well, that doesn't really explain this. So what's going on here? And then you start to uncover additional reasons that kind of help you understand what 
locks in help seeking or locks out help seeking and so forth. So the kids would say in a situation like that, oh, sometimes the teacher will just put my example on the board and share it with everybody. So that's risky for me as well. The other thing that makes it tricky, the third kind of interviewing strategy is that people aren't used to explaining, like giving evidence to support their reasons. So you'd ask probe, kind of lead and probe questions. So you ask, okay, so what might prevent you from speaking up when you don't understand it? And kids would say, oh, I'll feel dumb. But then I needed to ask kind of checking and probe questions to to start to understand, okay, what is it you've seen and done that leads you to think this is what's going to happen? There's a tool that Chris Ardress and Donald Schoen invented called the Ladder of Inference, and it talks about how it kind of breaks down the meaning-making process where you reach a – like at the bottom rung, there's the whole pool of data available. And then at the next rung up, there's people kind of in select what data is important, what data is important to attend to, because you can't attend to all the data going on around you. At the next rung up, you, you kind of make interpretations about what that data means. And the next rung up, you kind of, that brings you to conclusions. So what that's part of the interview process is, is really kind trying to kind of reconstruct that meaning-making process that people go through. So what's the data that they noticed? What kind of, why did they notice that instead of, like, what's the data they noticed? Well, somebody laughed when they made an error. But, but there's things they didn't notice, all right? There might be things, times where people shared an error and nobody laughed, and then it was okay. What does it mean when someone laughs? Well, it means everyone thinks he's dumb, so they kind of interpret it. What do you conclude? Well, that means that it's too risky to, to not get the answer right. The only problem is you can reach conclusions that shape. The conclusions kind of also tell you what data is the most important to attend to. So you kind of end up reconfirming your preconceptions. It's a really useful tool, but it is a bit theoretical, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. So how did you use that? tool within these interviews to try to get to the the theories in use? So I used it by starting with, I guess starting with actions is a way to first use it. So you start with what has actually happened and then you'd ask and then kind of trying to build up for how did you make sense of what happened. So say, for example, if if a student said, okay, if I ask a question, then people are going to laugh at me. And then you'd kind of say, okay, well, what is it that you've seen that leads you to believe that's going to happen? So that's trying to interrogate the data that's led to that conclusion or surface the data, and then you're kind of trying to interrogate it. So why do you think that people laughing means that they think you're dumb? Okay, build your way up. Yeah, is that, is that enough? Yep. That helps, that helps. And I, I think that one of the points you made there in about how once you get to an inference that at the top rung, that then shapes the how you filter the data when you move from the bottom to the first rung. I thought that, that was interesting as well. It kind of describes another way in which confirmation bias occurs. So that was an interesting point. Yeah, people people talk about how it's, you know, you, you can't 
you can't make sense anew of every new piece of information. So it's, it's quite a, it's an adaptive process. It helps you kind of wake up and not need to learn everything fresh. The only thing is it can lock you into preconceptions. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. There's a couple of other ways of thinking about why students might not ask questions. And you, you mentioned things in your book such as culture and gender, group norms, self-efficacy, and agentic engagement, the last two of which I thought were, were particularly interesting in this context. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about these and, and I'll reassure listeners that we're not far off the kind of classroom-ready actions that we'll get to. But I did want to spend a bit of time on these kind of topics because I think they're important. I think they often come up as justifications that teachers give for why students engage or don't engage in certain ways in the classroom. So maybe we could start off with culture and gender. Was there anything you found in your study or that prior research has found that relates to culture, gender, and help-seeking behavior? In terms of gender, there wasn't many, there was no studies that I came across that's, there was, that's, well, no major studies I came across that suggested gender was a driving factor for why people would or wouldn't seek help. I think there was one study I read which said there was African-American girls might be less likely to because they're they're driven and they see help seeking they don't want to rely on other people so they're kind of focused on that there was a couple of studies that there is a couple of and i came across this when I interviewed teachers as well think people think that kind of cultural norms the people the students i worked with were largely from pacifica and maori backgrounds and so there is a bit of theorizing in the literature that the, the cultural norms about respect for elders and things like that would kind of prevent kids from speaking up in class when they didn't understand. And teachers seem to kind of agree with that. But I guess in terms of the data that I got and the what I learned from the kids, it seemed more likely that it was the culture of the classroom. So because you would have Kids kind of learn in in that classroom what's what to expect, what's likely to happen, and they may have traditional values about being respectful to elders, but you could see kids being quite rude to elders and also not wanting to speak up. So you kind of start thinking, okay, well, if the driving factor is about being respectful to elders, how come you see some of this you know, at times rude behavior, you think, well, that's not very consistent with with that belief. So I guess what kind of happens is in the class, and what was a really important factor for the kids was they didn't want to be seen as kind of acting outside those norms. So they would kind of be confused. They would stop, look around, and see that everybody else looked like they got it. So then that made not understanding quite risky for them. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and a key point that you made in one of the papers, I don't remember which one, but was, was the impact of context. And it reminded me of an exercise I was encouraged to do whilst at uni doing my Master's of Teaching, where we were encouraged to not necessarily follow a teacher for a day, but rather pick a class of students or a group of students and follow them for a day throughout a school and to see how they behave differently with different teachers and in different contexts and therefore get a really good idea of you know, how one particular student can present in different ways depending upon the context in which they, they are located. Is that kind of something that was front of mind that you thought about or did you observe the same students in multiple classes or do anything like that to try to further explore the role of context? 
I didn't observe them in different classes, but I did ask them about different classes. And because I'd kind of developed enough rapport with the kids, I kind of trust their answers. Some of them would say that the, you know, the pattern whereby the teacher says, does everybody get it? And, and everyone goes, yep. It happened in other classes, like the science classes. And then they went on to explain how they said they did get it, but they really didn't. And then the exam came and only three people passed. And the per- that person who we interviewed was one of them. So it's it did seem like it could happen in other classrooms outside of maths, but I didn't go around and follow them. So I guess I'm quite interested, Ollie, for you, when you did that activity, what did you notice? What did you notice when you went around and saw them in different classrooms? Was it the subject or was it the teacher that made more of a difference? I only did it a couple of times. But I guess from those few times, it did seem to be more related to the teacher. I guess we could stereotype about the kinds of teachers that teach in different subjects, and there's probably some truth to that. But yeah, I did see vastly different behaviour from different students, and it did make me reflect upon the ways in which teacher behaviour shapes student actions. And also it's something that I've had the, you know, the, the luck to do more recently as well, because you know, I now have a class. And I now do some, a bit of coaching at school and things like that. So I actually sometimes have an opportunity to see my own students in other teachers' classrooms. And that's often quite an encouraging thing as well, or sometimes discouraging, depending on if they're more open and more, more help-seeking in other teachers' classrooms. But yeah, it's definitely a pretty powerful action to take to observe students in different contexts. I think it's a big thing because a lot of the theories seem to suggest about help-seeking and, and growth mindset kind of seem to suggest that it's an internal state of the students, but then if you put them in a different situation, you start to see quite different behaviour. Like they can, and I agree, they can change from one class to the next. So th- to me, that was kind of saying, well, these this is something these theories are overlooking. Kids can really vary depending on where they are. And I think, like you're saying, I think the main thing is the, is the teacher, and it would be things like to the extent they've developed a, a strong relationship with the kids or to the or maybe the kinds of activities that they encourage they set for kids but i i kind of think that the the general there's a general pattern that i noticed across all the classes where there wasn't really much public discussion of errors or there wasn't much willingness to publicly reveal that you didn't understand and i saw that as kind of going across a lot of the classes that are well, at least talking to the kids. So they, you know, they can vary their behaviour in lots of ways, but that was one thing I thought seemed quite constant. And partly I think it's because the teachers themselves are not really aware of those dynamics and they, you know, if we, if we get into it later, we might the, the teachers have concerns about kids making errors and disclosing errors that might that make it so that that's not a normal thing that happens in the class. Yeah, we'll definitely dive into that later. And in relation to the centrality of relationships, listeners may want to go back to hear from another New Zealand researcher from the ERRR, Russell Bishop, because the episode with him here made some fantastic points about the centrality of relationships to education and specifically with uh, Māori and Pacifica kids as well. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Another point you made about characteristics of kids that, that influence help-seeking behaviour was self-efficacy. And this was actually something that I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't thought about 
that much before. And that was basically the idea that some kids have such low expectations of themselves or beliefs in their own ability that they think even if I ask a question, I'm still not going to be able to understand. And it's been their experience over over time and time again that they may ask questions of the teacher or of peers. The, the person they ask tries to explain something to them and then they don't get it and that just compounds their their feelings of being dumb. Was this kind of a new idea to you or was this this is something you come across before? Or yeah, Well, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it myself either, but I think it's there's two self-efficacy issues going on here. One is the student's belief about their own self-efficacy to be able to get it after someone else explains it. But the other one is the efficacy of the helper to actually help. So a lot of the times kids would, this was where their very, understanding their variation kind of helped understand their behavior because who they asked for help was quite important. They were, they were willing to ask people who were patient, who could kind of explain it in terms they understood. And often that that wasn't necessarily the teacher because from the teacher's point of view, often the mass makes a lot of sense, but they struggle to understand why it doesn't make sense for the student. So students talked about, well, the teacher's just, what happens when you don't get it and you tell the teacher? And they would say, well, the teacher goes to the board and he just does it again or he explains it again. And yeah, and I think for kids, they may or may not be thinking, well, I th- that does make it more risky because then you don't get it after you've received help. And there might be times where kids have received repeated help and they don't, they still don't get it. And the dynamic of the classroom makes it that the, the kids are going to feel like the one who's at fault rather than the teacher feeling like the one who's at fault for not being able to connect with the misunderstanding or even identify the misunderstanding that the kid has in the first place. Totally. And that, I mean, that relates to one of the final point I want to talk about on this, which was the idea of agentic engagement. And that's where some students don't see teacher behavior as out of their hands and see it as something they can influence. Can you expand upon that a little bit, the idea of agentic engagement? Yeah, this was a new idea to me as well when I wrote up that first article. And it's basically the notion that kids can kind of be more or less agentic in terms of getting the the resources and the help that they need at school. So, for example, there was one student who noticed that the teacher was quite rushed in class So he, because he had 25 kids to, to keep look out for. And whenever he asked him questions, he would just kind of try and do it really quickly and show him like this. And, and he didn't think that was so helpful. He thought, okay, well, if I ask the teacher after class when he's not so busy, then I might be able to get the help that I need. So whereas there was a lot of kids who kind of very quickly reached the conclusion that asking the teacher for help is not really going to be effective under any circumstances. So some people kind of showed some agency in terms of getting the resources that they need and other people, when the resources weren't there, they were kind of quick to jump to the conclusion that, well, that's just the way it is. And I guess another factor in that agentic engagement is simply asking the teacher like to slow down. It's like, oh, sir, when you explain things, you often rush. Can you slow down? I'll probably understand more. And it's quite interesting. This year, for the first time, I've had some students who have kind of talked to me like that. You know, I literally yesterday, I had a student say to me, oh, sir, the first topic this year, you didn't teach that well, and I didn't really get it. But the second topic, you've taught really well. Can you please teach the same way you've been teaching the second topic for the rest of the year? And I was like, well, I'll do my best. And what was it like for you when they, when they kind of said that? 
Well, it's good. It's good. It's uh, I guess it's down to me to kind of pinpoint the difference between the first topic and the second topic. I think I have some pretty reasonable ideas about what that was. But yeah, having that kind of feedback is really helpful as a teacher. Because I've had kids give me that feedback to pass on to a teacher because they don't feel like the teacher will listen to them. And I've pulled the teacher down aside, like in the context of Japanese teaching, for example. And it's hard for the teacher because it makes so much sense to them that they forget what it's like to be learning it for the first time. So I pulled them aside and said, you know, the kids have said it's gone really, really fast and they're, they're not following along. And but what stands out to her is the off-task behaviour, you know, but they're kind of related. Because if the kids, if it's going too fast and the kids don't get it, then that's where you end up getting off-task type behaviour. So, you know, and then if, but if kids are off-task behaviour, then the teacher's thinking, well, it's not me that's going too fast. It's just the kids aren't kind of engaging and participating properly. So you can kind of get stuck. Yep. Okay, so just for listeners, I might recap some of the stuff we've covered so far because we have covered a lot of theoretical ground and a lot of frameworks. So one of the first ones we talked about was, I guess we talked about help seeking in general and we framed today's discussion in the idea of seeking help, talked about the importance of help and at the start you really talked about how you thought that one of the key differences between people who can learn, accelerate their learning and those who don't is willingness to have a go and that led you into this research in the first place. We talked about tension systems, how a lot of students want to achieve the learning, but they have things pulling against it, you know, in the framework of kind of promoting and restraining forces. You talked about achievement goal theory with, you know, mastery goals versus performance approach or performance avoidance goals, as well as the idea of growth mindset. And then we walk through kind of espoused theories versus theories in use and the ideas that often what we say we're doing and why we say we're doing it isn't actually the case and how within your research a big challenge was trying to get to those theories in use and those real reasons. More recently, I mean, we, we touched on the idea of context and more recently we've talked about a little bit about culture and gender, group norms, and, and just now self-efficacy and agentic engagement. There's one final theoretical piece of the puzzle that I wanted to touch on today and this piece of the puzzle is actually within the title. It's in fact the title of your second paper. And that's this idea of the cycle of protection. And this kind of ties together quite a few of the threads that we've been playing around with so far. So Aaron, could you introduce to us the cycle of protection, how you uncovered it and why you think it's important? So the cycle of protection is kind of what I used to describe the interlocking pattern of interaction that teachers and students ended up trapped in because of their views about errors. So from the first study, I, I noticed that kids, there was, a, there was a really strong pattern. When kids, when I looked at their perception of psychological risks and the learning benefits of help seeking. So when they thought that the learning benefits were, were high, like they would get a clear understanding or they would get good good help and they thought that the risks were low like the person would be patient it wasn't going to annoy anybody else nobody was going to laugh at them then they did it and when those when those conditions changed and maybe they became more risky because people were going to be frustrated or maybe the the benefits went down because they thought that the help wasn't really going to help them anyway then their behavior changed as well so 
kind of following from that, it started to highlight, I think really one of the big risks for kids was about standing out from others as being the only one who didn't understand. So they weren't really that worried about being wrong per se, but they were quite worried about being the only one who was wrong. So what I, because what I found when I did some kind of intervention work in classrooms, we did some activities where we got the kids to hold up whiteboards, their answers. And so there was kids who'd made errors on those whiteboards. And when I interviewed them about how it felt, they talked about, well, it was, it was actually okay because I wasn't, I, could, I wasn't the only one and I could look around and see how other people had worked it out and kind of figure out where I'd gone wrong. So, you know, the context changed, the behavior changed, the perception of errors changed. So I started to think, okay, if, the, if for students the driving factors is well, the, the psychological costs of errors and help-seeking are high and the learning benefits are low, why is that? This is a classroom. We're meant to be focused on learning. What's so wrong about not getting it right? And so started to look at the, the interaction in the class and in particular like teachers' pedagogy. So you can kind of trace those beliefs back to common practices teachers did like for example they would invite volunteers to answer questions rather than kind of ask students at random or ask students to hold up a whiteboard and show everybody their answer and what happened then was there was students really got exposed to other people who had made an error so so kind of like led them to believe it's got to be just me because they look around and everybody else is kind of getting it. But the students, there were some students who interpreted it a bit differently and they thought, oh, those other people look like they're getting it, but actually they probably don't understand too, but they're just covering it up. So for them, they started to, they, you know, they thought, okay, the risks were lower for them because they're thinking, oh, actually, I, I can probably, I probably won't be the only one who doesn't understand this. So what was the context in which, because I understood what you said before about if teachers only ask for volunteers, then the only people answering are those who get it right. And that provides a false idea that everyone in the class is getting it because it's a biased sample. What is it that leads students to thinking, oh, maybe others aren't getting it? I think they've just kind of come to the conclusion because they know themselves. There's times when they do it, when they exhibit that same strategy. So they kind of do the same. Which strategy? The strategy of acting like they understand when they don't. Oh, just saying, yeah, I get it. Okay, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think they also, the, the students who I talked to, they also believed that the teachers, some teachers thought so too, that, okay, I'll address this because lots of people in the class don't get it. But asking for volunteers was the mo only, that was really a habitual practice for teachers. And when we talked about, well, how about instead you ask three people at random, that was something they were quite resistant to. And it was similar to, there's other practices that they did as well. So when errors popped up, there's that idea that, okay, I need to explain it again. And then the kids need more practice. And the only thing was for kids, if the explanation didn't connect, like if you kind of think of two train tracks, one train track is the student's understanding and the other train track is the teacher's teaching. And if they don't cross, then it doesn't matter how many times the teacher explains it, it's not really going to help. 
So that, that you know that contributes to their perception of the risks and benefits as well. So I kind of noticed there's practices that contributed to these student perceptions. So then what I did was I went and tracked back, okay, well, what's the perceptions of teachers that lead them to prefer these practices and see things like calling on students at random as kind of a bit risky themselves. So they talked about, you know, one of the big things that came up for them was that they thought errors were risky too. They thought, well, errors reveal that students are weak. If students are revealed, if I reveal that students are weak, then they'll get embarrassed and that can damage the relationship that we have. I don't want them thinking that, you know, that I'm picking on them and things like that. And they also thought that, like, rather than make errors, students would withdraw. So they became worried, well, I won't have time to get through everything. If I try and set a really challenging task at the start of the lesson, which might reveal misconceptions, but the kids just kind of don't try it, then that's going to be a waste of time. So it kind of worked out that everybody was kind of trapped in a loop because the, when the teachers saw the kids withdrawing from errors, then that confirmed their belief that, well, actually, I shouldn't discuss them or I shouldn't set tasks that are going to lead students to make errors because students did withdraw when, you know, they did withdraw from the risks. So teachers saw this as confirmation, um, not too embarrassing. And then when students rarely heard others' errors, that reinforced the belief that, oh, yeah, I'm going to be the only one. That's only me. Everyone else has got it except for those select few who'd kind of reinterpreted that situation. But interestingly, even students who I studied who'd made a different interpretation throughout the whole year, because nobody else was really revealing the errors, they went into their shell by the end of the year. So they, they kind of reverted back to thinking, nah, I think probably it's too risky. And then because teachers kind of avoided errors themselves, even though they said to the students, well, errors are good, they're learning opportunities, their actions implicitly communicated that errors are probably not so good. And, and because they weren't probed or inquired into, there was really much learning from them. So, so you, you can see how that goes back to the students thinking errors are risky and they're not really going to help me learn. Okay, so that's the cycle of protection. Essentially, it doesn't matter where it starts, but there's kind of a, an avoidance of errors by students. Therefore, teachers try to avoid scenarios in which errors are revealed. And then, and if they do reveal errors and they see that students withdraw, so that then reinforces their desire to you know, not reveal errors and basically go round and round and reinforce these beliefs that errors are a dangerous and, and horrible thing. Yeah, it's a, like, I think that's why people feel a bit trapped but they also kind of take these notions about errors being too risky as matters of fact rather than matters of interpretation because they've seen it. They've seen kids withdraw. And so, oh, actually, this is a, this is a fact. It's not me interpreting this situation in any way. Totally. And, and even if they're a spouse theory and even if they say in the classroom to students, oh, come on, errors are important. We all need to be open about our errors. Perhaps their, their actions don't actually implicitly communicate that to students. And so that's the point to which we turn now, you know, what can teachers do to normalize errors? 
and how can we support these error-informed classroom activities? Dear listeners, a quick reminder that those who have signed up as patrons receive a summary of my takeaway from each episode. This month, I've done my best to condense the key ideas from this episode into a concise three-point framework to help the key points within this episode to stay with us for the long term. If you'd like to receive this summary of the important takeaways from this episode, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show. Whether you donate as little as $1 per month or the average Patreon donation of $5, I'd be immensely grateful for your help in keeping the Each for Our podcast sustainable for the long term. Thanks for your consideration, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, we're back. So now we really get into the practical side of things, and, and we're going to kind of approach this segment of the interview through three kind of scenarios, and, and this is how you approach it in your own paper. So we talk about actions and reactions with students and teachers when teachers are demonstrating procedures. We talk about actions and reactions with students and teachers when teachers are trying to facilitate a class discussion. And then we talk about it in terms of correcting practice questions and kind of when the, the teacher's walking around the class and things like that. So let's start off with the idea of demonstrating procedures. So a teacher's at the front of the class, they're doing their whole class teaching what happens within teacher demonstrations and whole class teaching that makes students less likely to ask questions and what can be done instead? Can I expand it to not just ask questions, but have a go? Sure. Let's say have a go. Okay. So I think from the kid's point of view, when teachers always show them how to do something and then set them practice on routine type problems, they feel that they're, what they say is, well, I'm, I'm meant to get it. I'm meant to know how to do this. If I don't know how to do this, I'm at risk of being perceived as dumb because I've already been shown how to do it. Or I'm at risk of being seen as inattentive because maybe the, re- the teacher will think the reason why I don't get it is because I haven't been paying attention. And I think that that's a problem when that's the only way, the only thing that kids are exposed to it's because then they start to think, they get into this mindset where, okay, I'm meant to get the right answer and they feel pressure that that's the only acceptable outcome. So what do you want to get into what teachers might do differently? Yeah, sure. So what I, what I started to notice is, say I was with a group of kids just one afternoon, they're doing calculus offline, and so I set them a problem. So there's a goat on a rope, and you have to work out, well, how long's the rope so that the goat only eats half of the oval that is tied to on a post? And so those students, that's, that's, a, that's a problem that I didn't know the answer to. But those students straight away, they got in and they started trying to think, oh, what about this? Or oh, what about this? And they went down lots of dead ends and they were, they were getting, they were probably making progress, but they were nowhere near getting a right answer. So, but they didn't feel that was a bad thing because when it's a problem-solving context, if you don't get the right answer straight away, you're not expected to. It's meant to be hard, okay? It's meant to be challenging. And you can, it doesn't mean that you're done because you didn't get it straight away. So what I started to think was, well, kids need to be exposed to these kinds of problems more often. Problems where it's not a routine question where you're meant to get the answer straight away. Or maybe you don't even need to be shown how to try it first. So, so a couple of things I thought teachers might do in addition to setting genuine problems, you've already heard about diagnostic problems or diagnostic questions. 
So it kind of helps, I guess, to backtrack a little bit, the overarching framework for thinking about what you could do differently is asking questions like, well, if you really thought errors were genuine learning opportunities, what would you do? What would you do differently? If you want to increase students' perceptions of the benefits of errors and reduce their perception of the risks, what would you do to, to achieve that? So I think the problem solving, adding problem solving fits in because there's not as much pressure to get the answer right. Other things that kind of fit in is diagnostic questions. So you're intentionally setting questions that kids get confused about. So you're also communicating, well, it's not just about getting the right answer here, but what happens is when kids make errors, you make good use of them. So you can treat them respectfully because they come from misconceptions. Like, oh, yeah, okay, this is very common. And as soon as you say this is very common, then that's reducing the risk as well because one of the concerns for students was, well, I'm going to be the only one. But the, the thing that makes it beneficial for learning is that sometimes kids need to unlearn things. So there's, there's things that they've picked up along the way, and if teachers are always explaining things or showing them methods, there's never an unlearning step where kids need to, where you're correcting the misconceptions that lead kids to make repeated errors. So uh, like another example is the algebra by example, where you could use, you could still use worked examples on the board, but you could look at common errors that are made. And as soon as you're saying, well, this is a really common error, that's making it less risky. And as soon as you're helping kids understand where they went wrong or where the person who did that work went wrong, then you're increasing the learning that comes from it. So it's more likely that the kids are going to experience that as less risky and a genuine learning opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I guess I'm just trying to, I'm trying to process this in, in the context of my own classroom because, and I'm trying to reflect because, I mean, I've got this one particular physics class at the moment. I've, it's my second year with them. I had them in year 11. I've got them in year 12 now. And I've done a lot of explicit teaching, but I've also done a bit of kind of inquiry and problem solving stuff with them over the years. So I'm trying to see, I guess I'm just trying to see how much it matches my own experience that when I do explicit instruction stuff, they're more likely to have a, or they're less likely to have a go than when I do inquiry stuff. I don't know. Well, there's, there's preconceptions. Okay. So like when I've done it in Japanese class, one thing I did in Japanese class, I put up, I did a like kind of like a self pre-testing type thing. So I put up a, a self-introduction and it was about 10 lines. And what I had to do, what I explained to the kids, I said, so, what, so when I say test, what do you think about? And they think, well, report cards, being evaluated and that sort of thing. So instead I said, okay, this isn't a reports test. This is a learning test. So this is a strategy to actually help you guys learn. I'm not going to evaluate anybody. It's not going on anybody's report card. It's just a more effective learning strategy than what you guys usually do. And the way it works is I'm going to put up, I've got the whole whole kind of self-introduction up here. Who thinks they're going to be able to learn all of this? And nobody's hands go up. So I say, well, this is what we're going to do. The first round, you can read it. Okay. You have a few minutes to practice. Then I'm going to ask a couple of you to do it for the class. Next round, I'm going to take three lines away. 
So you have to try and do them without them, without reading. Next round, I'm going to take three lines away. Next round, I'm going to take three lines away. And what the kids started doing is even when the lines were up there on the board and they could read them, they weren't looking. So they started trying to do it from memory. And by the end of the lesson, they'd all memorized like a 10-line self-introduction. So I asked them, so who kind of exceeded their own expectations of what they're able to do? And they're all like, oh, yeah, that was actually, I didn't think I'd be able to do that. But if I hadn't have kind of differentiated between testing for evaluation or testing for learning, then the kids' preconceptions that, oh, no, if I don't get it, that's bad, are going to kind of come into effect. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess what you've done there is from cognitive load theory terms, designed a, a guidance fading problem, which, which, yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. I guess something I'd be curious about there is that, you know, that was a scenario in which you were able to kind of talk and present a question and present an activity in a way in which students were more willing to have a go. But the example you just gave wasn't related to necessarily problem solving. So, yeah, that's still something that I'm... I'm struggling with and trying to see the connection there. I mean, I, I can kind of see how the idea makes sense. Yeah, keep, keep going. So, so what it is about for me is about getting away from only doing skill and drill. And, what you know, the game show countdown, or as we call it in Australia, letters and numbers. So what happens is there's a number round and you have to pick like big numbers and small numbers and there's a random number generator and you need to get as close as you can to that number. So I've done that activity in the class with kids and what it kind of does is it helps to weaken the association between not getting the right answer and being dumb because you can do a pretty good working out but not get the right answer. And so... It just seems like in a skill and drill context, there's not really many opportunities to weaken that association because, you know, it's quite rigid. And it probably, I don't think that's, I'm sure it has a place, but I'm just suggesting that I think there needs to be a bit of balance because otherwise you end up with these associations, correct answer, good, wrong answer, bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Another another thing here is that, We've talked a little bit about asking questions and I thought I had when I was reading some of your papers was often the best teaching I've done is actually when no students ask questions. For example, I'll use mini whiteboards, I'll model a procedure, then I'll say, have a go, five, four, three, two, one, ping. Students put up their whiteboards and I can just see what's going on. And I don't actually have to ask any students, do you understand or are there any questions? I can literally just see from the classroom, from the whiteboards, from, you know, 20 kids looking at me, how we're going and what the common misconceptions are. And this relates to the kind of hinge question idea or diagnostic question idea you were talking about earlier. And from there, I can make the comments like, oh, yeah, okay, only three people got this right. Let's hold up. I'm going to go through this again and let's have another go. But that's, that's still in line with the kind of explicit approach. I think that's fine. Yeah. I think that's all good because you can't, like a test, like a checking question like that, is a better test of how well, a well-designed one, is a better test of how well students understand than waiting for them to tell you. I guess you get the answers up on the board. The main thing at that point then, I think that's a good thing for risk because everybody's participating. 
All right. It's like when you're asking kids to nominate themselves that they don't understand in front of everybody else, that's too risky. But nominating, but everybody has to do it. So there's safety in numbers. So it kind of minimizes the risk. In order to make sure you increase the learning, I think it's just about making sure that the train track, you know, the kids understanding and your explanation that they kind of cross at some point. So in terms of the errors they produce, sometimes you might be able to understand, okay, I can see the reasoning behind this, or this misconception has led to this. But do you, well, I don't know, do you find that's relatively easy to do on the fly? Depends how experienced I am in the subject. For subjects I've been teaching for a while, yeah, I can do it. For subjects I'm more of a novice at, it's, it's a lot harder. And you'd have to plan it. Well, I, or you might have to ask students to explain. You know, you might have to say, okay, can, I need someone to explain how you got to this answer. Because then when you can understand where they're coming from, it's more likely, I think, if you address it, that there's going to be a good outcome at the end of that experience. You know, the kids will have been treated respectfully. Nobody, teacher wasn't, and, and what's going on in your head at the time isn't, oh my God, I've already told this guy how to do it. What's wrong with him? You know, there's a bit of ownership of that in, in your case as well. And you're thinking, okay, I don't get it. I need to understand this better. Can someone explain it to me? It's kind of a different setup than, okay, the kid's the one who needs to start paying attention better, you know? So it's hard for the kids to feel like they're at fault. And if they walk out of the door going, I really get that now, then that's kind of, you've reinforced that as a good thing for them. Okay. There's something else I've been trying recently. I'll, I'd be curious on your thoughts on this approach. So I think the, the mini whiteboards and all answering at the same time, that works pretty well for like quite short questions, you know, where there's not heaps of working required. It's like a quick recall or something like that. But it's more challenging for when it's a longer form question, maybe a bit more problem solving or something where students don't know where to start quite as much. So what I've started doing is using a visualizer and I'll give this, I'll say, I'll give you five minutes to work on this and then I'm going to pick someone and we're going to have a chat about what you've done. And it's okay if you don't have it right, but we're going to use it as stimulus for conversation. And then I'll just like give them five minutes and then I'll use a pop stick, pick one student, grab their work, chuck it under the visualizer and we'll have a look at it. And I'll say, you know, can you explain to us what you're thinking? And then I'll say, does anyone have any questions or suggestions or something like that? How does that match with kind of what you've, with your research? Well, I think it's publicly discussing errors is actually takes some of the sting out of it. It's normalized. It starts to normalize them. And the only, the things that you notice when you look at, there is studies like the early studies from the TIMS where they notice differences between how study uh, errors are handled in Japan and China to America. And so some of the things they do is they plan lessons to surface errors. So they, they set tasks where kids are not really, they're a bit too hard for them, but it's going to surface kind of important misconceptions. So if part of your purpose in setting the task is like, okay, this is a little bit too hard, but it's going to help me find out where they're getting stuck, then already you've changed the dynamic a bit in a way. And then what they also do is instead of calling the kids who got it right, is they call the kids who got it wrong to come and share their work. And instead of, so that's kind of also normalizing errors, that it's okay. And when you make errors, what it's about is about, well, we've got to learn how to stop repeating them. It's, it's not just about, okay, I want to find out who's got the right answer and kind of be like, yep, yeah, now that the kids have heard the right answer enough times, they should probably get it. 
enough and then moving on to the next question. So and so if you can if if you've got the students working through the errors and kind of explaining it and you can understand and they end up understanding, oh yeah, I, I get where I went wrong now, you know, then I think that's a positive thing. So one thing I started to do after I finished the study with teachers and I was taking my own math class was we would do, you know, like we'll do a, a, a series of one really interesting thing we did. We we did like taught a unit and it was probably, I think it was on decimals for year nines. And then we had the, the typical test. And so we did the test at the end. But then the kids did quite poorly on that test. So what I did was I kind of made a little graph that showed what areas were strengths and what concepts we hadn't mastered yet and presented it back to the students and said, okay, I think here's, here's what the results are. We haven't done that good. Do you want to move on to the next topic or do you want to have one more week where we try and work out where we went wrong and, and then reset the test? And I'll just, I'll, it'll be the same test, but I'll change the numbers. And so they all said, oh, yeah, I think we should do it. Have, let's have a week. And in that one week, they learned more than they did in the whole four-week unit leading up to it. And what worked was we I'd gone through the tests and put up kind of the common errors. And I used kind of like a like a self-explanation format. So in, in it was a three column. So in the first column it said, okay, here's what one of the errors was. And then in the next column it said, okay, what was the person thinking? Where did they go wrong? And then in the last column it said, okay, you try. And so it got them to have a go at similar types of problems. So it was really about finding out where kids were going wrong and then having a go themselves. Then what was interesting thing was because the kids knew they weren't going to do very good on the test, they were actually quite motivated. They were more motivated in those three days that I had them than they were leading up to that. Because they're like, okay, if I want to do better, I've got to do something. So like kind of seeing that they'd hadn't done well and then have but so long as there's the opportunity to fix it. So I, I think, you know, that's what that's what the classrooms need. Is when the when students have made errors, they need opportunity to fix it. Because then you can actually learn from it. And and a lot of the tests that take place, well, that's the end point. You move on. But the test could be brought forward a little bit, and then you're actually using errors that you know students have made as the as the point of discussion in the lesson. Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, that format's good as well. This is the mistake they made. What were they thinking? And now you try. For that middle one, because I've done a different thing, a similar thing, should I say, for reflections, getting students, because I give students a progress check each week, and often I'll get them to a reflection like, what question did you get wrong? What was your misconception? I think your wording is better, actually. What were you thinking is better than what was your misconception. It's probably more easily accessible for students. And then, you know, how would you do it next time, which is like you try. I found that often students just write in the like, what was your misconception? I forgot how to do it. Yeah. Did you see a lot of that or did you? how did you push past that? I think the kids need a bit of modelling for that. So when you, you do a couple as a whole class, and I found those diagnostic questions really helpful for helping kids identify how you can have a good chain of reasoning, but it leads you to the wrong answer. 
So, like, when the, whenever we put the misconceptions from the um, diagnostic questions up, I wouldn't just go – mainly the reason I do that is because I want the kids to be able to identify the reasons why you might get the wrong answer. And so th I found when you do that as a whole class, there's a, usually some kids who are quite good at that. And they can go, oh, so that person must have been thinking this and this and this. And so kind of introducing that with the diagnostic questions and then moving on to like a more, you know, the self-explanation part of that three columns that I explained, that's a bit more thorough than that. And so doing something all together, sometimes you need to ask specific questions. So I would say, oh, so, you know, why did the person end up with two decimal places instead of one decimal place? Or, you know, so that sometimes they need to be directed a bit more to where the issue might be or a more specific question. But if they put, like, say if they put down, oh, I forgot, well, then that could be an error that you discuss with the class. That could be an example that you put up on the board and you say, okay, so, so where did this person go wrong? What's, what is it about I forgot that doesn't make it helpful really for them to learn for next time? Mm. Or in fact, why did they forget? Yeah, possibly. What could they have done differently to, to, such that they didn't forget? Yeah. Okay. Or what could I have done differently as a teacher to make it less likely they'll forget next time? Yep. 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 Okay. Maybe we'll talk about the idea of facilitating class discussion. So that was demonstrating procedures. You know, what happens during class discussion that makes students less likely to ask questions? And maybe you could, you could start off with what you mean when you talk about like facilitating class discussion. Well, the main thing is that teachers would say, yep, errors are good, they're opportunities to learn. But then actually when errors were made, that's not really what, that didn't match what they did. So instead, like there was some pretty interesting strategies teachers would use to avoid explicitly saying that's wrong. So they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't want to say that. What they would do is they would repeat the question. They might redirect it to another student. They might, sometimes they said, oh, yes, perfect, in response to a wrong answer. Sometimes they would ask, and, and this was, a lot of this was automatic. Like one thing that was quite automatic was teachers would ask an easier question. So say, for example, if they asked a kind of a challenging question that required an explanation, and nobody, and then they got confronted with deer in the headlights because nobody thinks, because at that point the kids are feeling like, well, the teacher wants someone to supply the right answer. And if they don't know it, then they, they kind of go into their defensive strategy of deer in the headlights. And then the teacher goes very quickly, switches to like a yes, no question. So they might say, oh, so is this one like this? whatever, and the kids feeling more confident of knowing what the teacher wants them to say would be like, oh, yes, or, or no, like that. So, so the problem, I think mostly, is that the, the kids really never experienced what it's like to learn from the errors. And the, the implicit message that, because when teachers got the right answer out, they would be like, oh, yes, that's the right answer, and they'll move on to the next question. So they, they kind of get the implicit message from the way the teacher acts, which is different to what they say, that, well, errors aren't really used for learning. They're more likely just used to evaluate who got it and who didn't. Mm. So what can be done instead? Well, 
how can you interrupt that belief that the kids have that errors aren't useful for learning? I think we already talked about some stuff that can do that. So instead of affirming correct answers, when errors pop up, well, I think what teachers need to do is they need to be a bit more reflective rather than protective. And they need to be like, oh, okay, I wonder why that kid got that. And maybe that's the point where they start to probe into, okay, tell me how you got your answer. In fact, that was rare amongst the teachers. A lot of the times it was saying, so who's got the answer for this? And once the answer was provided, there was really a follow-up question saying, okay, good, how did you get it? So the focus was often on what's the answer rather than how to get the answer. So I think a big first change would be focus on how to get the answer. And if you had a class where you said, okay, so does everyone get this? And they all go, yes. Then at that point you go, okay, cool. I'm just going to pick three of you to try and explain it in your own words so that we can make sure it's, it's clear. So that kind of is going to make it hard for them to cover up if they get it or not. And it's going to give you some data to, to help you really check if they get it. And it's going to tell the kids, you know what, if I say that I'm, I've got it, I better be prepared to explain it because the teacher's going to be, the teacher will require that of me. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess something I'm worried about is often I've found that it can take a while for students to understand a concept to the point that they can actually articulate it in their own words especially if it's a complex concept. And, and often that learning kind of episode happens over a series of lessons. So I guess I'd be a little bit worried that picking three students at random and getting them to explain in their own words is a pretty high bar in terms of like understanding. And often I would want to move on at a lower level of understanding where they can answer kind of some more basic check for understanding questions and then revisit the concept in later lessons and build build on it and build on it and deepen over time. I don't know. What do you think about that as, as kind of explaining your own words just after you've presented a concept as being a, maybe a bit of a high bar at times? Yeah, I think the bar can be altered depending on the kids. But I think the idea that the kids, like if the kids are completely unable, it's, I guess it's a little bit different. But what you said there kind of reminds me of the cycle of protection where the kids freeze up or you feel like nobody's going to be able to do it. So then that kind of discourages the act of asking them to. And so it kind of like gets locked into that pattern a little bit because the more you ask them to explain their thinking, the better they'll get at it. And if your expectation is, okay, I want them to explain this concept correctly in your head, then I think you'll front up against these issues. But if your expectation in your head is, okay, I want to get a bit of an idea of their capacity to explain this in their own words from a few random kids, the reason for participating then isn't for the kids to be able to describe the concept correctly. It's for you to be able to get an understanding of what the kids are capable of. You know, So that changes the reason for kids to participate. And that popped up a lot for the kids because in the study because they thought, well, if the teacher wants someone to provide the right answer and I don't have it, then I don't have a reason to participate. And I think the change, one of the, one of the things teachers can change is saying, okay, 
I need to provide a reason for kids to participate that isn't just about the right or the wrong answer. And having access to their thinking or their their ability to do something and, and being able to use that to inform what you do in the class, that's um, like I need to know what your answer was just so I've got an idea where you're coming from. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty powerful, Aaron. That's pretty powerful because you have just pointed out the kind of cycle protection I was falling into. I guess maybe one thing that's that I was feeling uncomfortable about was the the actual phrasing of the question. Now explain this in your own words because that does basically say to the student, "I now expect you to have the answer." So perhaps we can find some middle ground between what you're saying and what I'm saying by rephrasing the question and say, "Can you share with the class?" what you currently understand about what we've been doing. Something like that, because that frames it as like a current understanding, not a fixed thing. And also not necessarily that I'm expecting the right answer, but it's whatever you contribute is something that as a class we can build on. So I don't know, what do you think about that? You know, I think that's that's a good move. Mm-hmm. That's a good change. And I, it kind of shows, even I've been studying this stuff for a long time, there's a range of things that are automatic. Mm-hmm. That teachers, because teachers have developed habits, mm-hmm. okay, and there's phrasing or ways of thinking about stuff that's automatic that maybe isn't consistent with this belief that errors are learning opportunities mm-hmm. and it's normal to make them. So you, you have to be really aware of, you know, the gaps between what you're saying and doing and, and that if you believed that error, errors were learning opportunities to be true. Mm. Yeah, totally. And and also, I mean, a trap that I've fallen into at times, I think, is is kind of aligned with what, what you suggested, which is you say, does everyone understand, which is a horrible question for any teacher to ever ask. It's quite common, though. It's, it's one of the most common questions. Yeah. And in fact, it's one of the most useless questions. But a teacher asks that and then everyone nods and then the teacher says, okay, I'm going to pick three people to explain it. That's actually not treating errors as a learning opportunity. That's actually position them more as a way of catching people, kids out for lying, basically. So we've got to be careful there as well, I think. I think, though, if you're really focused on kids being okay to share that they don't get it, Mm. that's the opportunity to say after that, well, if you didn't get it, I want you to tell me. Mm. All right? You've seen what happens when people don't get it in this class, and it's it's okay. That's actually normal when you're learning challenging stuff. Mm. So uh, to me, it's about a way of calling out that dynamic that students can see it, that they're caught in this cycle where they just kind of act like they get it, but they don't. And then maybe there's a better way of handling it in that classroom. Totally, totally. So yeah, I mean, maybe another modification is perhaps for teachers not to ask that question in the first place, does everyone understand? And simply go straight to the thing, okay, we've just explored this concept. It's pretty tricky. It usually takes quite a while for students to build the picture of it. What I'd like to do is check in with a few people to their current understanding and we can build on that understanding to work out what we need to spend more time on or something like that. So you've kind of, you've reframed the question, but you've also reframed how it's introduced with it not being like a, I gotcha kind of a, kind of a scenario. Yeah. yeah. Because you're right. There's an underlying fear that the, well, the questions are often used as a, as you know, singling people out and catch mm. or catching people out mm. because it's a mechanism to try and make sure they're paying attention sometimes mm. for yeah. some teachers. Totally. And, and I guess another thing, and this relates back to the stuff from explicit direct instruction, maybe even providing students with an opportunity to pair share about their explanation of the concept or to reflect and do some writing about it 
so that students who need a bit more processing time aren't fully put on the spot. Because some students can find it hard to, even, even if they do have a bit of an understanding, they might struggle to put it into words when they are singled out without some thinking time. And, and maybe this can be thought in a, of as a continuum of checking for understanding. So early on in the learning process, teachers who can anticipate common student misconception can use well-designed check for understanding questions to see, to kind of bring up those misconceptions and discuss with the class. But then as the concept gets refined in the minds of the students and the teacher feels more confident that students are actually getting to a more complete picture, that's when they can say, all right, pair share now, have a chat with the person next to you. How would you describe your current understanding of this concept? And then we'll bring some of them out and see what we need to spend some more time on or something like that. Well, I think potentially you could even do it before they've learned much about it, you know, because I think the whole part of the whole idea of normalizing the errors is that it's okay if they don't understand much, but you want to, you want to make it a safe place where that can be discussed in the classroom. So it's, I'm I'm a little bit wary myself, and I just think Peshier and and those kind of things too, but I just think, okay, is this a way of minimizing errors being publicly discussed? And if it is a way of minimizing errors being publicly discussed, then what does that send? Maybe there's other things I'm doing that sends a message that actually errors are okay, but maybe I'm, I'm kind of contributing to that belief where, okay, probably if I didn't get it right, I shouldn't say anything. Okay. I see where you're coming from. I guess where I'm coming from is that I think if I've if I have and if I can design a, a really clear sequence of instruction that's likely to develop students' deep understanding of a concept, and if I've tested that procedure with multiple classes in the past, and I know it's a relatively effective one, it probably makes more sense for me to check for that deeper understanding slightly later than slightly earlier, where slightly earlier I can do shorter check for understanding questions to see if they're following my reasoning. But, but you know, you may be, you may be right as well. Um, I guess that's just my thinking at this particular point in time. All right. Was there anything else in terms of facilitating class discussions that you wanted to say? Well, I, you mentioned something about uh, wanting to move on. And I think that was a big driver for teachers' behaviour that they feel, okay, I want, they have to keep moving because they've got lots of things to get through. And that kind of drove, that was a driver for, you know, okay, when the right answer comes out, cool. That's a tick box. That's mm. done. Let's move on to the next thing. Mm. And when the wrong answer came out, well, I better not say anything because I don't want to discourage the kid. But I'm going to try a range of strategies to get the right, an- elicit the right answer somehow. So, yeah, that, that, I guess what I started to think was though, at least in that cycle, where you're affirming the right answer and and not real and not really inquiring into the reasons for errors, it might actually slow things down, because the teachers talked a bit about well we we're going to have to do lots they had to do lots of revision, so they end up moving on a bit too fast before the kids actually understand things, which led them to have to do revision work a lot. From the kids' point of view, it led them to feel like well hang on, the teacher doesn't care if I get it. It's going way too fast. This is way too hard for me. And so it was, I don't know, it's an interesting issue, I think, mm. with the pressure to move on. And then, but how can you, how, how can you kind of, like maybe there's other ways of, like if you've got really well designed checking questions, then maybe that's a strategy that helps you get through things quickly, but also be able to make sure you don't leave kids behind. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like every step we take, 
check for understanding. Is everyone with me at this point? And really atomize the instructions so you can clearly check at each at each point, each reasoning point, who's with you. Yep, that makes sense. Yep. All right, correcting practice questions. So, I mean, first of all, in your papers, what do you mean by correcting practice questions or this kind of phase of the lesson or of phase of the learning episode? And what often goes wrong and what can we do differently? Well, there was the, there's the tendency to call invite volunteers to participate and that kind of driving force that the teacher wants to elicit the right answer so they can move on to the next question. Um, so what happens then was the kids who it kind of inadvertently increases the psychological risks of getting it wrong because mainly everybody else seems like they're getting it right. Okay, so just to put this into context, this is you're talking mostly about math classes and the teachers demonstrated a procedure or something like yeah. that. They might have done some check for understanding stuff. They might set the students free on some independent work. And now we're we talking about that, when the teacher saying, "Okay, everyone, let's see how we went with these questions." Is that that's what you mean? That's what that's the phase of the lesson we're in. Yeah. Okay. So usually it's about like the last fifteen minutes of the lesson. Okay. Sure. And the teacher would be going through the, some of the questions that were put up on the board. And so I guess often they'll ask, "Okay, who got the answer for this?" And that goes back to that uh, point we were talking about earlier where the reason for participating is to provide the right answer. Mm -hmm. So if for the teacher, if that's what drives their behavior, then it drives the kid's avoidance because if they don't have the right answer, well, they, they shouldn't really share it. And that's where the shift in the teacher's thinking to say, okay, I don't want to elicit the right answer. I want to get an understanding of where the kids are coming from with this. Then you'd rather ask randomly or you might rather try and find out who got the wrong answer mm. because the kids who got the wrong answer are the ones who really need the most help. And maybe just seeing another example of how to do the right answer isn't going to be enough to actually help them understand it. Mm. So I think avoiding a voluntary participation at that stage is quite good. Mm -hmm. If you can have a whole class response somehow, like with the mini whiteboards, or if you've roved around the classroom and you've seen some common errors. Mm -hmm. When I did uh, kind of like modeled lessons with some of the teachers I worked with, when we started the lesson by with diagnostic questions and requiring them to answer them, that was quite different for the kids. They weren't used to it, but, mm -hmm. they, but, but they did it. And when they made errors, then we treated them respectfully. And then when we did the practice, corrected the practice questions, I didn't ask anybody what what's the answer to this. I asked people at random and people disclosed errors and then we went through them. Okay, what were you thinking here? What were you thinking here? What would you need to think next time? And then I came to a – I ran out of – I couldn't remember all the names of the students in the class. So I asked the teacher themselves to kind of step in and say, okay, well, who – can you pick somebody for me? And so his habitual way was, okay, who's got the answer for this? Okay, what's the answer for this? And he asked one of the girls. And it and it triggered in her straight away a concern. And, and what she said was, well, sir, but what about if it's wrong? So I kind of cut in and said, well, we've had lots of people sharing their answers and two of them been wrong already. And actually that was okay. And it helped us understand the concept better. So we'll be fine. But when, so then she shared it and I was like, okay, cool. Thanks for sharing. 
Uh, meanwhile, the teacher jumped in and said, oh, very well done for getting the right answer. So kind of praising correct answers and not probing, or, you know, not acknowledging students' participation, that was problematic because mm. that praise was consistent with the, the perception that the kids had that correct answers right, mm -hmm. errors is wrong. Mm. So I guess I noticed a bit of, you know, in that correcting practice questions, how my thinking had changed in comparison to the teacher. And I could also notice how I hadn't been able to change his thinking mm. in the ways that I wanted to. So, do you, do you want to share a little bit more? Because I mean, one of your one of your papers details how you did work with a series of teachers, and how you tried to support them to take a different view towards errors. Can you share a little bit about that experience? How did, how did that go? It was quite hard because. Partly the way that I was, the approach, like you've spoken to Vivian about her book, Reducing Change to Increase Improvement. Mm -hmm. So in that, she does a really good job of kind of outlining a process of doing intervention work with, with teachers that kind of engages their theory of action. So I was fairly familiar with that stuff, but it does depend on a high level of skill in what she calls open to learning conversations. And that's the ability to be able to kind of directly discuss problems and 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 that people might inadvertently contribute to in a way that doesn't create defensiveness. So although I did all right in that, I, I kind of found myself probably I struggled to directly confront teachers about the consequences of their actions and to be able to go, you know what, I think you're doing this leads to this. And to do that in a respectful way where you invite inquiry into your own views back. Mm. So being able to have a bit of a mutual, you know, a mutual process of critique mm. going back and forth. But it was complicated to get the theory and the patterns. So I was trying to develop the theory and the patterns at the same time as trying to coach the teachers in, in what they should do differently. Mm. And I guess it wasn't really until we tried to change the teacher's patterns, like say suggesting different moves to start the lesson or different moves to correct answers, that I really started to understand the main drivers for what was going on for them. So it wasn't really until the end that I had, after I'd tried to change things and not really had much impact, that I got all the data I needed to be able to really you know, grasp the whole dynamic from the students and the teacher's point of view. Mm. Does that make sense? How are you going yourself? How are you going changing your own classroom practice? It's good. That's the easy part. Because what I found it really, really interesting is that the kids are really quick to change. So if I change my thinking and I change my behavior and uh, around errors and, and attempting things, then the change in the classroom is really almost automatic. Because you have to be effective, though, at doing different actions that make it difficult for the kids to keep confirming their preconceptions. But once you start taking actions where the kids can't keep going, oh, no, error's not going to help me learn. Oh, no, everyone's going to laugh if I make errors. You know, once you start taking moves to interrupt that cycle, then the kids can respond quite quickly. So say, for example, when I talked about 
getting the test results and kind of sharing them. That's something a lot of teachers wouldn't want to do. Mm. They wouldn't want to disclose that the kids didn't do didn't do poorly on a test. Okay, but I, I thought, okay, well, this is okay. That's normalizing it. This is okay. We didn't do so good. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you want to do? What do you want to do to fix it? So we had a week and, and giving them an opportunity to fix it. So those things help the kids go, well, actually, if I made errors, I might learn where I went wrong and be able to fix it for the next time. Mm. So I've, I've had interest from other colleagues at the school and they've come in and observed my classes. So they, they kind of agree that there's a, usually a high level of kids kind of disclosing when they don't understand and a high level of participation even when the work's quite challenging and just been trying to help them adopt some strategies as well. And I think that's been more successful, that kind of work. I guess those people are already interested. They don't always see their own contribution to the problem. A lot of the times they might be seeing, okay, well, the kids are not trying when they should be, but not really seeing what they did that contributes to that in some way. Mm-hmm. So, but, the, but I guess I can discuss it with them a bit better now to be able to say, well, I think this is what the teachers are doing then or you're doing, not mm-hmm. the teachers, that might actually lead to this in, in the first place. What do you think? And then getting them to do alternative strategies, like one of the science teachers I was working with started using pre-testing as one of the strategies he used in the class. And he did a like a little self-inquiry himself and found that it, it did, you know, the theory was working, mm. helping to change the kids' patterns of participation in the class. Okay. So Aaron, you said you've been addressing some of the issues within yourself and you said that changing yourself is kind of the easy part. Is there anything else that you think prevented the teachers you were working with from taking some of the steps that you have? Like about the what made it hard for teachers to change, I think like a big issue for them was their concerns about, you know, damaging relationships with the kids because trialing some of those strategies was then potentially high risk because if you, you know, say if you go from just to having volunteers answering to requiring participation and you pick the wrong kid at the wrong time and they come to resent you for it, the teachers saw that as quite a high-risk strategy. Mm. So I guess what I didn't do well there, because it's not just the voluntary calling, it's not just the action. What it really is is the focus on evaluation or it's taking the evaluative focus out of the equation as well. So it's not just about, I want to see who's got the right answer. It's got to be also, okay, I need to know what some of the kids in my class are thinking about this. So, yeah, because I think if teachers do just do that random calling and they're still just focused on, no, not that, no, not that, no, oh, yes, good, that's the right answer, then it's still risky. Mm. So, Okay. So a follow-up to that is, why weren't you worried about damaging your relationship with students? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I guess when I called on students, I'd already shifted my thinking that I wasn't just focused on getting the right answer out and that I wanted to hear from them. And I guess I felt confident because they don't always, they may not always react well to that, but I kind of can act consistently with that belief and go, well, it's okay. I just want to kind of get an idea what a few of you are saying. Or if they freeze up, 
because teachers are worried they'll freeze up and take too much time. Then I've got strategies like, okay, you have a bit of time to think about it and I'll come back to you. So I don't know, maybe I was confident that I could talk the kid around, that I wasn't picking on them. But I, when I did it, I didn't find students felt I was picking on them. Because a lot of the time I'll preface it with something like, okay, well, I'm not going to ask for hands up. I just want to, I'm just going to ask a few people at random. And the reason for that is because I don't want just the right person who's got the right answer sharing all the time. I want to hear from somebody, I want to hear from a range of you guys and see what, you know, a few of you are thinking, not just the right person all the time. Mm. So it's, I guess what I would do is I'd kind of call out the pattern and explain, well, I'm doing this to interrupt that pattern in some way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this is something I've come across myself because I'm a big advocate of cold calling and some of the people I've worked with or coached have, I've said, oh, you know, you get a better sample of student understanding if you actually cold call rather than ask for volunteers. I haven't taken the angle about normalizing errors before, but I think that's a really powerful one. And I have had several people say to me, oh, you know, I don't want to make the kids feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and I just, I don't know, for some reason, I've just never had an issue, had an issue with that. And it's, it's my assumption and kind of my, my experience that they just get used to it. They just get, they, used, do. they just get used to being called on. But probably if they're in a classroom where they're not used to it and then the teacher switches to it without any explanation then I could understand where the kids might feel a bit of resentment. Mm, okay. But if but if they're just exposed to it all from the start, they just come to accept that as, well, that's what happens in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm expected to be able to share my ideas publicly with the rest of the class. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of the normalizing and the taking the risk out of it because it's like exposure therapy. The more you're exposed to it and you see that, well, actually, it's okay, I didn't, I didn't die, I wasn't laughed out of the classroom, yada, yada, yada. Then they've got counterexamples against those embarrassing examples. Yep. To go, well, actually, in this classroom, the consequences of doing this are likely to be this, so it's okay. Mm. That's a bit vague answer, but you no, 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 that makes sense. Have we already touched upon everything you've been doing in your own classroom to try and change this, or are there other things you've been doing yourself to try to, uh, to address this? Main things I've been doing... It's doing tests with time for kids to do. I don't want tests to be the last phase. Mm-hmm. I want kids to have an opportunity to fix things and for me to have an opportunity to unpack the errors with the kids. You know, the, I think the random calling and just focusing on getting students to participate and explaining that you want to understand what a range of them are thinking mm-hmm. is, a, is a really good strategy. And Pre-testing, there's probably other stuff too, but it's just kind of in the hustle and bustle of school. You just, I just find ways to try and like, the underlying theories there, and then it just pops out sometimes. Fair enough. So it's like the theory, if I thought errors were real learning opportunities, if I want to make errors less risky and more beneficial, what would I do in this situation? Yeah. So it just, yeah, it just happens. Okay. Previously, I mentioned my discussion with Russell Bishop and the centrality of relationships and within Within that interview, I was asking him, I was saying, yeah, but I want, you know, you say relationships are important. And he was talking about this idea of deficit theorizing, which is basically where teachers, for, for the benefit of listeners, often deficit theorize about students. That is, they make reasons or they come up with reasons or they believe reasons for why certain students like Pacifica or Mori or other marginalized kids aren't going to succeed. And then yeah. their behavior supports that. The kids pick up on their beliefs 
and you have a and and it impedes their learning. And I was saying to Russell, okay, well, you tell us that relationships are important. You say that deficit theorizing is bad, but you know, I want three concrete steps that I can take in the classroom so that I don't do deficit theorizing, for example. And yeah. you know, he, he he kind of he he gave me these roundabout answers, and I couldn't I couldn't couldn't work out what he was saying. But I eventually realized what he was saying, and that's basically that. Similarly to what you've just said, it's not about the actions that you take. It's about the beliefs that you have that underline the actions and that motivate the actions that you take. And if you actually change the beliefs, you will find that the actions naturally change. And that's exactly yeah. what you've just said. You know, you find you ways because it just popped up. Yeah. And you've just described what's known in the with the theory of action literature as double loop learning. Mm-hmm. So single loop learning is when you try and change the actions, but you don't change the beliefs. And double loop learning is when you inquire into and change the beliefs that drive the learning. And that's what Vivian talks about when she's saying engagement. So she's saying, you know, if, if the beliefs stay the same, people are going to act consistently with them. But once you change the beliefs, then it opens up a whole new avenue of actions that previously wouldn't be considered. Mm. And And this relates really well to... An example you gave in one of your papers of what you called explaining mode and the story of Haley. Can can you recount that that idea? Sure. It actually started the day before Haley with another boy that was there in a class trying to learn how to expand brackets with the algebra. So they had problems like x bracket my limit is minus three bracket x plus seven. And one afternoon I spent about 15 minutes with a student trying to help him and he still didn't get it at the end of the 15 minutes and I've been explaining it and okay you try and do it now and he didn't get it so I explain it again and I like try all different ways of explaining but it, it was it wasn't effective and I think it kind of stuck with me it's like oh 15 minutes didn't wasn't really much help there was I then the next day the same there was there's another student kind of stuck on the same kind of thing and I was getting into this, okay, let me try it, I'll show you. Okay, you try and do it, I'll show you, you try and do it. And eventually, I, almost out of frustration, because I, I was feeling frustrated at that point, that, well, I've showed them this many times, what's going on here? And out of frustration, well, well, what do you think you should do then? And so she had this problem in front of her, minus three bracket X plus seven. And she said, well, I think I need to take three away, but do I take, how do you take three away from X? Or do you take three away from the seven? Is that what you do? And and that's when it kind of dawned on me that everything I'd been explaining was bypassing this misconception that she had that as, as soon as you have a minus, it means you have to take something away. Mm. So I kind of shared it with the teacher that she was getting a bit stuck. And his automatic reaction was, well, she just needs more practice. And uh, kind of being a bit smarter now, being a bit wiser, I said, well, actually, I think it depends on the practice. I don't think she needs practice following the steps that you've shown her. Okay, she might need rather practice understanding the difference between minus as a... Operator. Yeah, an operator and minus as an integer. And the teacher got that. He got that quite quickly. So the next lesson, he started the lesson with differentiating between minus as an integer and minus as an operator. And then, without saying anything to Haley, but he went around and checked. And then he kind of came over to my where I was sitting at the back, and he's like, 
she got them all right, like that. So that was a big learning moment for me because the whole time I'd been doing this study, I hadn't really noticed that I hadn't been treating errors as learning opportunities. Like I'd just been treating them as a sign of whether or not kids got it or not. Mm. Oh, you made an error. Oh, it means you didn't get it. I better explain it to you again. Mm. Oh, you got it wrong. It means, you, it means you didn't get it. I better explain it to you again. And I wasn't really, I was kind of like on that train track analogy where the kids had their reasoning and I had my explanation and it wasn't really meeting. But when I stopped and inquired and said, okay, well, Haley, what do you think you should do? That's when she could, she said, well, I think I've got to do this. And that's where I became really clear. And I'm like, okay, that's what I've been doing wrong. Got it. So, and, and I mean, the reason why I brought this up now is because it relates to the whole theories of action thing and, and the idea of bypassing people's theories of action. So Haley had a theory of mathematical action in this case that really needed to be addressed. That, that core belief about what the minus means was therefore driving her actions when she was trying to expand the brackets. So it actually took inquiring into that theory of action to then change it. And once the theory of action was changed, she naturally you know, did it correctly. So I just thought that was a really interesting parallel between like the idea of theories of actions in, in multiple, in multiple contexts. Cause I had a theory of action driving my behavior as well. Mm. You know, I had a theory of action kind of saying, if I show her enough times, she'll get it. And it took kind of reflection on the belief that was driving that behavior. First I had to see it in myself mm. and go, Oh, that's not really what I would be doing if I thought errors for learning opportunities. And then, so I had to kind of question and go, okay. And then, so it kind of shifted. Mm. And this idea of misconceptions has kind of become central in my thinking now. Mm. So it's like, which is, I kind of link to this idea of unlearning. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's not enough to just explain things to kids. They, they're not blank slates. And that, that's kind of what a theory of action is too. They've, they've got preconceptions. They've got preconceived ideas about what to do. And, you know, sometimes you need to unlearn an old idea to, to move forwards. And, and so in that situation, explanation is not going to be sufficient. Mm. Now, when I, was reading, when I was reading your three papers, I was trying to kind of summarize it and I was trying to build a mental model for myself that I could relate to. And I mean, this theories of action stuff and this belief stuff was, was one side, but then I was trying to boil it down to like, that second or that moment when the student's trying to work out whether or not they're going to ask, ask for help or help seek. And, and we can think about this like when they're doing their independent practice or something like that. I'll just share with you kind of how I boiled it down. I'd be curious on your reflections. But basically, I boiled it down to three things. One is to do with an interaction. One is to do with an external concern is one, and one is an internal con concern. So the interaction-related one is basically, will I learn from this person? if I'm to ask them. And and so this is an interesting one. We've talked about this a little bit prior today in terms of, you know, some students feel that if they ask the teacher, they're not going to understand their explanation. So why would they bother asking them? And so I guess the actions for the teacher to take for this is reflect on the way that they interact with students when a question is asked. Do they go straight into explaining mode? Do they inquire into the beliefs? Things like that. I think also you need to do a bit of follow-up once you've tried to help a kid. Okay. So say if you've offered help, then, you know, and you say, okay, do you get it now? That's not going to be a very reliable test. Mm -hmm. 
okay, like after you've provided help, you, you need some kind, like just to ensure you don't get trapped in that cycle, what's your way of getting feedback to tell if you've actually been helpful? So asking something like, okay, can you just tell it back to me so I can check if it's clear for you? Or, you know, can you tell me what you'd do differently on the next problem now based on that explanation? Because the, the, if to the extent that the students believe you're going to be helpful or not, or to the extent that you've been helpful or not, you need to be aware of that. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that was the first idea. Will I learn from this person? And there's a multitude of factors that play into that. The second one that we haven't talked about that much today, but I thought was really important in your papers is, will the person be frustrated by my asking them? And this came out a few times in your papers. So, for example, some students... Well, some students didn't want to show they didn't understand in class because, as you mentioned, they didn't want to hold up other students and the, the pace of the lesson. Some students didn't want to ask teachers because they felt that the teacher got annoyed when they asked them because the teacher would say things like, well, I already explained this or, you know, did you do your homework, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that for me that really hit home because that's something I've definitely done myself in the past and since reading your papers, I've tried to, I've tried my best. Well, it's, to- it's, it's hard because sometimes kids don't read homework. Yeah, that's right. Some kinds of kids don't pay attention. That's right. right. So it actually does happen. Yeah. But it's 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 just hard if it's it's going to be because you don't want to encourage that behaviour in that listening either. And I guess maybe you need a way of telling. Okay, maybe instead of saying, you can you could ask them, well, were you listening? Mm. As a genuine question, mm. because then you can start to try and sort those out rather than lumping them all in the same group. Yeah. Totally. But, but but I know that's definitely a trap I've fallen to. Be, and I'd say last year with one of my math classes in particular, I got frustrated a few times and I think that actually changed their help-seeking behaviour and especially the help-seeking behaviour of a few students in that class such that they didn't seek help from me that much for the rest of the year. And, you know, that was that was quite poisonous. So reading that in your paper was really like, okay, this is something I really need to be conscious of and something that I can definitely improve on. So that was really good. And that also showed up when they were talked about when you talked about students asking peers for help. Some of them didn't want to ask peers because they didn't they thought the peers would get frustrated. They didn't want to disrupt the, their peers who were studying and things like that. So that's another factor that I thought was really, really important. And then the third one, which we've touched about on a lot, is just like, will I look dumb? And changing students' beliefs about the role of errors there. So yeah, that's that's kind of some three takeaways that I got. Will I actually learn from this person or this interaction? Will they be frustrated? And will I look dumb? And that's that's kind of a way I've been thinking about this in terms of when I've been standing in the classroom myself and thinking about, yep. you know, what can I do to support students to ask ask more questions and seek more help? I don't know. How, how does that match with kind of your your mental model? I think it's good because you've kind of started to hit on the different forces. Right, so like, will I learn from this? That's a promoting force, mm-hmm. and to the extent you can provide better help, you can show them that errors actually can be diagnosed, and that leads to more learning. Then kids are more likely to answer, "Well, yes, I will learn from that." So you increase the promoting forces. Mm-hmm. Then, to the extent that people are going to, if there's relational tension, the frustratedness for me that means that the learning goals conflict with the relational goals. So to the extent that you can be like patient, understanding, but maybe sometimes you do need to be strict, mm-hmm. okay? I, I don't think I wouldn't rule out being strict in any case, but just being aware that kids come with those preconceptions because sometimes it wasn't even the teacher in front of them that they were talking about, but it was a story from years before. 
And they just thought, well, all teachers are like that, but they just hide it better, some better than others. Yeah, that was really powerful when you were like some students, you were like, well, does this teacher get frustrated when you ask? And they were like, no, no, but they're just lying. They really are frustrated. They're just not not showing it. That was fascinating. Yeah. And the, the teachers did get frustrated. You know, if they're explaining something multiple times and kids still don't get it, it's they're frustrated. But the thing is not to be frustrated at the kids. There's, you know, what's the explanation for the why the kids isn't getting it? If you're getting frustrated, it's because you're kind of attributing the reason to the kids. You're, you're attributing blame to the kids in some way. And you could be like me with Haley. I was getting frustrated. But then at the end of that, I realized, well, that was largely because of me and largely because of past instruction. She didn't get this belief that minus three means you have to take three away from thin air. She got that from teaching that had mainly exposed her to that kind of mass. Mm -hmm. So, so I could go, okay, you know, she's, I didn't feel frustrated anymore. You know, I felt curious. I felt, okay, actually I need to know a bit more about this now. So, you know, if you're stuck in that loop, you could be curious instead of frustrated, depending on your way of looking at it, looking at it. Mm. But the other thing then, like you talked about the, the being dumb, and I think yeah, that's a, that's a huge force. That's a huge restraining force for the kids. And, and we have talked about some things like being able to normalize them or publicly discuss them or mm. what can you do to make it so that the kids don't feel they're the only one. That's some way of alleviating those. So I guess you're looking to maximize the, the learning forces the promoting forces and how do you minimize the restraining forces? And if you keep following that as your your mental model, then you will be able to negotiate the classroom in ways where you should get kids, that's my theory anyway, that you'll get high levels of participation and, and but kids feeling psychologically safe at the same time. What do you think? Good stuff. Well, I mean, it's been, it's been helping me so far. Reading your stuff has kept really kept it front of mind for me for the last couple of weeks. And I feel like I've made some progress. I think there's still progress to be made. As I go over this interview again and, and kind of do some summaries for my for my patrons for the podcast, that'll help ingrain it even more for myself. And it's an ongoing it's an ongoing journey. Yeah, it's not easy to bring some automatic stuff to conscious awareness sometimes. Totally. All right, we might move into some closing questions. Okay. We didn't talk much about the PhD today, but you you have chosen to do a PhD and that's something that some teachers choose to do and some don't. And, and I imagine it's been a relatively decent workload, you know, in our correspondences, you've talked to me about how you have to get up early and squeeze in a few hours here and there, and you've got young family and stuff. So for, for any teachers out there who are thinking about taking on a PhD, what, what advice would you have for them? Um, it's a big undertaking. So I wouldn't do it unless you, I wouldn't do it for the piece of paper. Right, like if you're just doing it for the piece of paper at the end, you're probably not going to have a topic that's going to sustain you over a long period of time. And I don't know if the piece of paper itself, if you just want to keep working in schools, is is really going to help much anyway. I don't know beyond a master's what's you know, like I don't. In New Zealand, the the salary grade goes up if you've got a master's and a PhD, so they're all lumped in the same category. Mm-hmm. And I don't think. PhD, I think people think it's too theoretical sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like schools are seen as a much more practical place. So like mm-hmm. you don't know, you're just a, a theorist. But that was kind of part of my motivation because I wanted to do research that actually is connected to practice yeah, and helps kind of uncover 
what's going on in classrooms. And, and, and if I developed a theory, I want teachers to know that they could try and implement it and get the change and see the changes that they wanted to see mm. in the classroom. Do you have some plans for some next steps with this project? Like, you know, you're writing up your third paper now. Are you trying to going to try to consolidate this stuff into a book with some actionable steps for teachers or anything like that? Or I think the next thing I'll do is I'll look for I'll have another shot at intervention. Right. So now now I've got a more refined analysis of the of the classroom patterns, and I'm more rehearsed in kind of talking to teachers about it as well. I'm better to, able to explain it. I think, and 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 better able to kind of help them get out of those patterns. So, but really, I need to validate on a larger scale than just my classroom how well that stuff works. So that would be the next step once I'm finished writing everything. That sounds good. Are there any resources you'd say listeners may really like to check out in this space? It's quite a niche space. There is some pretty helpful ones though. If you if you look up. Stevenson and Stigler, and I think their book's called The Teaching Gap. So they've, they kind of like write about the differences. There's only a short bit in that paper about the differences, how errors are treated in Japan and countries like the US, for example. But it's kind of interesting if you wanted to get more info. There's probably a few, but they're just not coming to mind at the moment. Sorry, Ollie. That's okay. If any come to mind before the release of the podcast, we'll, uh, Pop them in the show notes for people to explore. Sure. What are you currently excited about? Fit getting it finished. So just getting it out of the way and then being able to be a dad. Like you mentioned, I got young kids, but that happened after I started. Okay. So so it's been a halfway through thing, but yeah, that'll be it's like something always hanging over you, you know, for a long time. So it will just be nice. Yeah, it'll be like a free man again. So I, I don't think I'll take anything on too quickly after I've finished. All right. No, good on you. And that's a good plan. Any last calls to action things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? I guess the main the main thing is that the research kind of suggests that the best way to learn from errors is, or the best way to stop repeating errors is to kind of surface them and, and, and correct them when they happen. And that's what happens consistently when you look at classrooms where there's a high level of learning from errors. It's kind of like, okay, the reason why we don't want these errors to keep continuing. And it seems like, seems a bit of a tragedy that those kids who make errors end up being the ones who never really understand where they went wrong because the errors aren't ever really discussed. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones who kind of need the help or need the analysis so if anything, I'll just kind of ask people to, you know, reflect on the way that they approach errors and just question themselves if, if those kids who need help, are they getting it? If those kids who need to understand where they went wrong so they can go right next time, is there scope within your classroom for that to happen? And are you, uh, you know, maybe the next step would be, well, how could you act more consistently with the belief that lots of teachers have that errors are really learning opportunities. And if you could do that, then I think you might be able to help those kids who really need it. Aaron Peters, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I think it's a really good example of how a teacher 
taking the time to really deeply reflect upon their own practice and even more so to inform their understanding through some various theoretical frameworks that are, you know, quite theoretical, it can really help bring to light some key lessons and some key actions for them to take in their own classroom. You know, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about achievement goal theory, growth mindset. We've talked about tension systems and espoused theories versus theories in use. And, and all of those things kind of seamlessly meld into classroom ready applications. I really enjoyed the discussion towards the end of the interview about the role of beliefs. You talked about double loop learning and we'll link to some some more articles about that in the show notes. And and you know, from a personal point of view, I'm just really grateful for you taking the time in your busy life to explore these issues so that people like myself can explore and read and learn about how to improve our practice and how to how to challenge some of our own assumptions in terms of the way that we promote or inhibit students seeking the help that they really need. So a big thanks to me. I'm sure listeners will have got a lot out of it too. And we look forward to your future work, Aaron. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Aaron Peters. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of the link to John Cat Educational. That, in tandem with the discount code ERRR30, will get you 30% off all books in the John Cat Educational range. And if you'd like to help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on and receive my summary of thoughts on Aaron's research, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to make a small monthly contribution to support this show. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. And I've certainly had some fantastic suggestions from listeners in recent months. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.